Hello everyone, this is Eric Prince. As many of you probably know by now, I write the News on the Record column here at Media Village. And I'm excited that this will be my debut podcast, so to speak. So we'll be providing a little variety on how the News on the Record column uh, is delivered now with this audio component. So as for this inaugural episode of sorts, I'd like to talk about some recent reporting that came out earlier this month regarding the magazine The Atlantic is now forecasted to lose an estimated $10 million in 2021 after a pretty strong showing the past couple of years. As some of us may recall, The Atlantic uh, had a noted uh, first year of profitability in quite a while in 2010 and has been considered something of a gold standard for those magazines, particularly online, that specialize in providing more sort of thoughtful, uh, long-form commentary. And this, as some readers of this column might recall, is what I was getting at in a installment of the News on the Record column that I wrote really in my first month or two on the job at Media Village, which was called, Is Funding the Policy Mags an Act of Charity? And in that article, I went through the fact that a lot of these magazines that sort of traffic in longer form, anti-clickbait type content have really struggled financially in recent years. And I go through the example of the New Republic, which was purchased by Chris Hughes, who was one of the minority shareholders and early co-founders of Facebook, which he tried to turn around with fairly limited success. And this article, as some might recall, uh, coincided with the closing of the Weekly Standard, which took a lot of people by surprise as its owner, uh, Philip Anschultz, wanted to sort of consolidate things behind the Washington Examiner. And in the time since, it seems as though the Examiner has sort of filled the void a little bit. I've noticed that it's very prominently featured regularly on Yahoo News's homepage and its news aggregator there and has sort of tried to bring up the slack a little bit. But inevitably, it's not arguably as detailed, perhaps, the pieces featured there as in the Weekly Standard. But the fact simply remains that it's not 1947, and in addition to having competition from other similarly situated magazines that feature somewhat similar content, there's also just so much, to state the obvious, competition from other types of media, including media that A, is more clickbait-driven, but B, also different methods of delivery. So it's not only that that the New Republic is losing out to tablet, but it also has to compete with, for people's attention, with Snapchat and TikTok and all the sort of plethora of new types of apps and and media delivery methods that are sort of predominating these days. So I know in the storage business, they say that contrary to popular guests, your biggest competitor, if you're a storage company, is not public storage or, or whichever other outfit might exist, but it's actually the trash can. So, you know, people throwing their things away as opposed to putting in storage. So similarly, I would say that the biggest competitor for the Atlantic is not necessarily the New Republic, but it's rather somebody flicking on the television, opening Snapchat, or maybe better yet, in this age of the pandemic, friends of mine can't even purchase a a bicycle helmet, let alone a bike, with all the uptick in people doing outdoor activities, is people closing their, their laptop, shutting off their phone, going out to get some exercise. But the recent reporting at the Atlantic took so many people by surprise. As I mentioned, it was sort of a gold standard, but it really was somewhere that attracted a lot of growth and attention during 
the Trump years, if we recall, some of the most controversial and hotly debated pieces during the Trump era came from Jeffrey Goldberg and uh, the, the editor there, uh, this famous and, and much debated piece on alleged, the former president allegedly calling uh, people uh, who served in the military suckers. And, you know, that was obviously a piece that relied on unnamed sourcing and had some likely some journalistic issues, but it was a piece obviously that drove a lot of conversations, as was Jim Mattis' interview where he talked about his reactions to the events of uh, Lafayette Square and, and the Trump administration's response to certain demonstrations during the summer of 2020. Uh, but the, the fact of the matter is The Atlantic was a major source of discussion during that era. And the recent downtick in, in readership there is in accordance with what's been happening at a lot of publications in the past six months or so since uh, former President Donald Trump left office in what something called the Washington Post called the post-Trump slump. And I just have uh, some statistics here. So The Atlantic is down in terms of readership from change of this time last year at down 51.9%. Washington Post is down 27.5%. The situation was always this dire for what I call the policy mags. And the Trump era provided a brief respite from a situation where, as I've talked about in many of these columns, big tech companies like Facebook and Google are already gobbling up such an amount and share of online advertising revenue that you're already putting these policy mags uh, in a difficult position to scramble for what's left. So that causes a couple things to happen. One, it causes them sometimes to have to traffic in more sensational type of stories that sometimes come at the cost of journalistic best practices, as I would argue that piece on, quote, losers and suckers, end quote, did. Secondly, you see an increasing shift toward a subscription model. So a lot of these magazines, The Atlantic, and including various newspapers, are moving more towards that subscriber mode of business. And as I've talked about in this column in the context of the New York Times, that causes a more opportunity for backlash from readers, and there's becomes less incentive for the for the newspaper to, um, you know, report quote-unquote hard truths that its readership might not be as happy with because people see a headline like happened in the summer of 2019 and respond to that by saying, I'm canceling my subscription, that whole hashtag cancel NYT phenomenon that, that happened in the summer of 2019 in response to a headline about a shooting in Texas. And that's, but the subscription model is one of the ways that these publications have to sort of adjust course given certain economic realities these days. But my point in saying that is that it's it's maybe possible that the Trump era provided a little bit of cover for what the actual reality is facing these publications. And back to this idea is of is funding them an act of charity. As many people might recall, The Atlantic has a wealthy benefactor of sorts in the widow of Steve Jobs, uh, Lorene Powell Jobs. But according to the NBC report that sort of got this whole conversation about The Atlantic rolling on July 13th by Dylan Byers, is that unlike some folks who may have, with some of the other magazines, may be looking to kind of keep keep them afloat out of pure charity or out of advocacy like they might donate to a, a certain cause, an art museum or something, apparently Mrs. Jobs doesn't exactly see it that way. And she hopes that The Atlantic can be profitable and she wants to show The Atlantic as a model for how long-form journalism can be profitable, can be sustainable, 
And well, sustainable is a funny word. It's interesting that that's thrown around a little bit recently in that the goal at some point for a lot of these magazines isn't even profitability. They don't even believe that they can be profitable anymore, but rather just to be able to pay its bills. And the unfortunate truth, and also sort of the elephant in the room, is that even amid the subscription, subscription surge that took place during the pandemic and during the Trump years, sort of before the aforementioned uh, Trump slump, which I uh, shared the statistics for before, the Atlantic still wasn't profitable in 2020. And that really puts into context the sort of a situation that a lot of these publications are in. And I'll read a quote that stood out to me uh, that was in response to a Hill piece that was also based on the NBC News reporting by David Burge. And it's a little snarky, but he's getting at something here in terms of the input costs. And he says, quote, I'm no Henry Luce, but I think I could operate a magazine full of B-plus Oberlin term papers for less than $50 million per year, end quote. So another question, of course, is these input costs. So obviously, in order to stand out in this type of media environment, one needs a few big names, and they need to invest in a couple of those you know, high-profile contributors. I remember at one time, and I mentioned this in another News on the Record column, that Andrew Sullivan himself, just by himself at one time, was responsible for a significant chunk of the Atlantic's entire readership came as a result of his newsletter moving to the Atlantic when he was there. So they're going to have to pay some of these higher profile contributors in order to to keep them here. But it, it's a very valid point about input costs that this commentator is raising. And one of the facts of the matter is that when you're a publication like The Atlantic or you're The Wall Street Journal or the, you're The New York Times and you have enough of that sort of legacy prestige, I think The Atlantic's been in operation for 164 years, is you're able to coast a little bit on that name, which generally allows you to well, people want to be published there, so it usually allows you to get away with perhaps being able to pay a little bit less than some other publications that are newer on the scene, need to pay big money for to get their content because people are a little less eager to publish there based on their name alone. But it's a valid point about in input costs, and um, especially in, in the rise of this sort of decentralized new media where journalists with big enough followings and name recognition on their own, whether they're Glenn Greenwald, whether they're the aforementioned Andrew Sullivan, can kind of cut out the editorial process, cut out the middleman, so to speak, and go right to Substack, go right to Medium, and connect with their fans directly, connect with their readers directly. So I would say that it's easy to look at the situation of The Atlantic in a way that doesn't necessarily take into account all the various factors that are getting publications like that to the situations they're in in the first place. So I guess one thought that goes through one's head is, are these magazines, these hundred and some year old magazines, are they relics of a different era? They're trying very hard to adapt. You know, they're making editorial choices that really at one time upset a lot of their longstanding people there. Uh, this happened at the New Republic. This happened at the Atlantic uh, and the famous incident when they wanted to cover more things about Christian the Lion as opposed to these sort of long form deep dives into various cultural and social issues, but I guess at the fact of the matter is that one has to sort of adapt or die in this sort of environment, and magazines like The Atlantic, like The New Republic, have to do these sort of things if they want to avoid the fate of the Weekly Standard and sort of be liquidated and have their resources start to be directed more towards other publications owned by similar, the same holdings companies that they think could be more, more profitable. But the big question is, what does this say for long-form journalism? And I'm not necessarily an Atlantic fanboy. You know, I might 
be somewhere between uh, praising it and the kind of blithe dismissal of it as B-plus term papers at Oberlin. But for the magazines that are really, in my view, putting forward great content, Tablet and others, what does that say of the viability of, of their business model? Do they have to rely on charitable contributions? Are they going to have to rely on people supporting them out of the goodness of their heart, like they might a zoo or a art museum? Obviously, certain publications like The Guardian have had a fair amount of success in asking readers for contributions Wikipedia style, and they were able to sort of uh, break even in what was called uh, the Guardian model, where they trot out this sort of sad in a way message and say, great journalism needs contributions, can you please give us money? And I think that's sort of anathema to many of us who want to think of these news outlets as being capable of being business of being businesses. I remember when Aereo magazine, which is kind of a smaller niche magazine that does a lot of content on, on sociology and um, various social and political topics put out their call for donations and one person commented I, I I remember this very vividly and said if you if your publication can't survive in the in the market, can't make enough money to pay for itself, it, it has no business existing. It's not providing value to people. And I, I think that's not exactly correct. I think that's a little bit of a misinterpretation of, of various things in economics. You know, there are certain things that, you know, your marginal cost as an individual might exceed your, your marginal benefit and such, and therefore they, they, they struggle financially. But it's it's a point that can't be ignored. And it's increasingly the case, I think, that the, the tide is washing out, so to speak, and exposing that a lot of these magazines are really unable to pay their bills. They're unable to make money. And for someone like Mrs. Mrs. Jobs, her whole project of trying to say, let's use the Atlantic as an example of the possibility of journalism to survive, to be profitable, and not to be a charity case is really being revealed to be in peril here. And I think that's cause for concern in some ways. Back to the Trump issue, I think Glenn Greenwald is correct also that a lot of these publications have staked their long-term reputation in putting out as much sort of anti-Trump content as possible. And they succeeded, I suppose, in their immediate goal of having a new president elected, but at at what cost, right? And this is a point I've tried to get at a lot in my Media Village columns, including on one I did this past winter on the trade-off between quality and clickability in journalism is that in the short term, you might be able to put out a lot of clickbait-type content. You might be able to put out a lot of content that moves, so to speak, but at what cost? And the cost tends to be an erosion in your brand value over time because if people come to expect things that are, are short, are sensational, or high on emotion, over time, people might be less willing to click on them after they get off that immediate sort of dopamine high. And, you know, not to pick on the National, National Review again like I, I did before, but you're even seeing that now with its chief editor, Rich Lowry, will come out and he'll put out, I don't know, a 250-word piece that's picked up on all the aggregators and you don't know it's a 250-word piece until you click on it and you say, wow, this is half the length of an email and this is what's being passed off as an article at this point. And I think that is the sort of thing that jeopardizes their credibility. But at the same token, their hands are sort of tied because they're they're losing out on the ad revenues they used to rely upon due to kind of the presence of big tech and such gobbling up so much. And then they have the competition of all the other media players, including the newcomers. So as we know, when the Weekly Standard sort of shuttered, what did Bill Crystal do? And uh, he started the bulwark and then leaving National Review, you had 
people like David French, they would start the dispatch, and before you know it, you're also your your former writers are starting their own outlets because we live in the build your own media era. So anybody basically can hire a few writers, get a website together, and you know, you have this sort of new outlets sprouting up. It's not like the old days where you had to invest in massive warehouses to hold your, your, your papers and printing presses and delivery people and trucks and gasoline and send reporters to every corner of the globe. Now you can have a few guys on, on a laptop in a loft somewhere on a WordPress website producing content that if it plays well to the big tech companies that control the flow of information basically on the internet can soon rival in, in, in readership a lot of the more established players. So there's also a little bit of a trade-off, I guess, between brand, as it's been historically constructed, and what that means in the current internet era, because maybe brand is a little becomes a little less relevant when your top guy at your brand, whether it's uh, Andrew Sullivan at The Atlantic, David French at National Review, can go out on their own, and then all of a sudden, okay, not only, now I'm also thinking, okay, I, I won't go to The Atlantic anymore. I'll go to Andrew Sullivan's Substack. So this is a long way of saying that the, the challenges facing a lot of these online media companies are pretty, pretty manifold at this point, and I don't exactly envy the position they're in. So what does one do in this sort of situation? And various publications have tried their ranging solutions, and a lot of them before long are becoming something other than publications in their business model. So we talked about Chris Hughes at the New Republic News, famous for trying all sorts of these different things that were trying to, in a way, make the New Republic a club or an organization more than just a magazine or just a, a paper. And he was talking about having coffee shops where there were New Republic themed and other publications, whether that's Quillette or just about anybody are trying merchandise. And, you know, at some point the question becomes, are you a magazine or are you, you know, a, a hat store or whatnot? And I'm not saying that's necessarily fatal. For example, you know, cruise ships do plenty of their business on, on uh, their casinos and in their alcohol. So you might say, well, you're just a casino on, on the water or something like that. So I would say it's not necessarily antithetical, but it certainly raises some concerns when your primary method of delivery, your primary reason for existing, your primary business is in peril. So the Atlantic, I think, still did the majority of its business uh, north of 50% on advertising, but obviously subscriptions are a big part of it. We, we talked a little bit about what we call the guardian model of asking for voluntary contributions. I, I just mentioned merchandise. Other publications are trying to sort of monetize their comment section, and they, you know, whether it's called Quillette Circle or some publications like the Wall Street Journal that are basically entirely paid walled. Obviously, you have to be a subscriber in order to to comment. So that's an idea. Uh, the the podcasting site Ricochet, I would argue, is primarily about paying in order to be part of a conversation about podcasts. So it's not so much that the advertising on the podcast themselves are are paying the bills, but rather people want to be able to discuss with like-minded people the sort of content that is on those podcasts. But the advertising state for these sort of magazines, the publications that want to have deeper, long-form coverage, puts it in a situation that is clearly being shown to be perilous. It's it To me, it was sort of intuitively the case that that was 
a likely outcome, as I talked about. Just the amount of competition for people's attention in the digital age, including competition that appeals more to sort of base impulses, that it's easier to watch a funny video of someone falling down, perhaps, than read a, a deep dive into, you know, an analogy between the ultimate fate of a star and that of a social system. And it might be easier to just take the path of least resistance, so to speak, and hop on to some content that is less intellectually demanding. But the fact is that it's no longer my word you have to take for it. And you can see that based on the reporting out of NBC News, which uh, seems to draw on some slides presented by The Atlantic to its senior staff, that even the folks who are most have a front row seat to this, who have most to gain or to lose, are also starting to sound the alarm. And according to that that NBC piece, uh, Mrs. Jobs is basically indicating that as much as she loves the journalism The Atlantic's producing, she's not going to shell out to cover its losses forever. And that's, I think, a lot to ask anyone to do, no matter how much money they have or success in other businesses. Even political donors, they probably want to back winning candidates. You probably don't want to endlessly shell out money to candidates who are losing. I know even Foster Fries, who's a big supporter of Rick Santorum, I think when it became clear that uh, the former Senator Santorum probably wasn't going to become president, I would have imagined that he started to shift his contributions towards more viable routes. And we know that he did in starting to back Turning Points USA and other sort of organizations. So just like you probably don't want to, as a donor, back a losing political candidate or back an art museum that is you know, in danger of shuttering and is taking taking water on all sides. I, I think sort of the catch-22 is that as the policy mags show themselves to not even be profitable anymore, back to this profitability versus sustainability distinction, but are even having trouble kind of having that baseline sustainability, that compounds and it makes the would-be donors, the would-be benefactors, the people who would extend to them charity even less likely to give in. It becomes sort of a, a self-reinforcing downward spiral. And the elephant in the room, and I'm not going to single out any one policy mag, because I think some do things better than others, and I think some engage in better journalistic practices than others. But on the whole, as cliched as it might sound, we are probably stand to lose if long-form commentary by good journalists or by expert guests, professors, academics, freelancers, thinkers wandering philosophers, call them what you will, don't have a place to readily publish in one spot, like at the Atlantic, like a tablet, like anywhere else. And you could say, well, in its place, we have Medium and we have Substack. And that may be the case. You know, you can go to Substack and you can find your preferred journalists. But I think there is still some, I'm showing my biases here. I'm showing that my traditionalism, but I think there is still something to be said that old editorial process for having editors, for having fact checkers, for having people help you kind of between your draft and it going to print, helping them to sort of refine it. And that's the sort of process that may be lost a little bit with the move towards A, the aforementioned build your own media that is sort of personality driven, or B, kind of just the journalist talking directly to his or her pre-existing fans and obviously that process is expensive. It's expensive to have editorial staffs. It's expensive to have people helping people knock out their work, beat their work into shape, so to speak. But I think that is something that has characterized journalism for a very long time, and it's, a, it's probably going to be a casualty that's lost. I know in the short term, a lot of people 
were able to look at, say, Glenn Greenwald's departure from The Intercept, which I wrote about at Media Village, and said, well, in that case, the editor was inhibiting the writer from telling the truth as he saw it and getting his point across. And that was absolutely true in that case. But as a principle, I'm not sure that that's a principle that is good. I think we're probably better served in an ideal world to have that sort of editorial process preserved. But the fact of the matter is it's, it's a dire situation in many respects for these these publications. And uh, just to sort of wrap up, it's, it's multifaceted. And I've talked about some of the variables of big tech. A, gobbling up so much of the ad revenue, and B, being a gatekeeper. And at the flick of a algorithm, it can make or break a publication, like we saw with Mike, which I've also covered at Media Village, and a whole range of other outlets, uh, especially given recent reports of, of Google perhaps playing favorites. Two is just there's such a growth in the amount of part of its reduced barriers to entry. As I said, it's, it's not that difficult for people to kind of start their own commentary site that can sort of rival some of the established players for many decades. But B, there's just all the new apps and constant flow of new streaming services and such, which makes it increasingly a challenge to focus on some of the deep dives on the issues that these magazines have historically specialized in. And that's why almost a decade ago, they were already pivoting towards these Christian the Lion type stories, much to the consternation of some of the old-timer institutionalists on their staff. And then lastly, the various substitutes for this sort of ad-based revenue, whether it's subscriptions and then whether it's to a lesser extent some of the other sort of Hail Mary attempts that I've talked about, whether it's merchandise, whether it's trying to monetize comments. I'm also remembering that some of the publications like the Wall Street Journal are even flirting with, let's have a Wall Street Journal-themed trip or cruise where we have a tourist attraction and then we have a lecture by one of our our people to me they're just probably not long-term to use one of the words of the day sustainable replacements for what's undergirded these publications for a great amount of time so in sum the very conversation i was having in february of 2019 about these magazines is just as present today and in the wake of the much discussed post-Trump slump, it's starting to put on display perhaps how dire of a situation a lot of these publications are in, as even as the pandemic fortunately recedes and American politics has its latest shift, it's starting to display that maybe these magazines are going to really need to adapt. I I don't think it's their fault even. I think that they're doing all they can. It's just we live in a new environment where maybe the fact that you have 164 years of prestige and brand and a storied history might not be enough to hold the attention span of the modern media consumer. This is Eric Prince. Thank you for listening to the News on the Record podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at MediaVillage.com. 